Hey guys, another beautiful day in the neighborhood. This is Juice Worth to Squeeze podcast, and I'm your host, Darren Adams. Welcome back to the lounge. Our guest takeover for this week is David Kaiser, or as his former athletes know him, Coach K. Coach K is currently the head coach of UT Tyler Patriots cross country and track and field programs. Coach K has 24 years of collegiate coaching and administrative experience. Prior to joining UT, he served as the men and women's coach, coaching staffs at the University of Michigan, East Carolina, DePaul, Purdue, Clemson, Wake Forest, and Kansas. With this frank and brutally honest coaching style, Coach K has developed and molded a lot of student athletes in his time. He has, to his credit, 28 NCAA Division I All-Americans, 103 NCAA National Championship Qualifiers, 35 Conference Individual Champions, 57 All-Conference Performers, 9 All-Time Conference Record Holders, 57 School Records, eight Olympic trial qualifiers, and many more just pleased student athletes. As you can tell, Coach K has many on-track accomplishments, but these, as you might expect, pale in comparison to the impact he has had and delivered to countless student athletes over the course of a long and successful career. Our conversation will cover a broad range of topics, including his experience as a coach in the athletic department, his thoughts on leadership, some of the fads in track, as well as thoughts on staying power in a very hard profession. So without further ado, Coach David Kaiser. So Coach K, before we get too far into it, um, we were kind of already pre-talking here uh, before we even got started. Um, why don't you give everybody a little bit about your, tell us a little bit about your background, what who you are, what you do, and then um, we'll we'll dive into it. All right. Well, first of all, let me let me say I, I appreciate the opportunity to uh, to be on the podcast and 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 talk about stuff. Um, uh, as you said, I'm I'm Coach Kaiser. I'm the head track and field and cross country coach at the University of Texas at Tyler. Um, I'm starting my second year. I've basically been here a year and a half. With with COVID, it seems like much longer. Um, but I'm, this is also my thirty second year in coaching college athletics. So kind of been around the business for for a minute and um yeah man i just just back doing what i love to do so it's awesome so for for our listeners uh coach k um and i met when i was in undergrad at the university of michigan i was fortunate enough and i say that sincerely enough to run track at the university of michigan i think there was a lull in the period when i got there to the point after i left where you guys where i was just good enough to be on the team and and do a little something uh, and make a contribution to the team before it, it started to, you guys started to change the culture around and then ultimately you guys wound up winning a Big Ten championship. But I I was, we, our paths crossed because you wound up becoming, I think it was, was it my sophomore year or junior year? I think it was my true junior year, redshirt sophomore yeah. year, uh, where you wound up becoming the coach. And then for the next three years, uh, three. three years, yeah, we were, we were locked in that in the dance of coach student athlete. Yeah, good times. It seems uh, it doesn't seem like it was so many years ago, but there's a lot of water that's passed under the bridge since them days. I know, I know. So you were gonna, we got to go over this because you were you were gonna tell me a story because you, I think uh, you're gonna tell me about the first time we met when I was in your office, and you're gonna remind me of like how that interaction went because I I don't re- I really don't remember it. I I think I remember walking down in there. That's about it. Yeah. So actually, there there were two instances within like my first week there, you know. And um, so 
So with you in particular, I remember sitting in my, in my office and you came in with Gabe Sanders and Gabe came in and, and introduced you to me. And uh, the conversation went somewhere along the lines of, you know, I'm Darren Adams. I'm a high jumper here, but I'm thinking about, thinking about not coming back out for track. I think I'm just going to go do something else and, and whatever. And you asked me to explain to you why you should stay. And I believe my response to you was, well, I don't know who you are, Darren. I said, I don't even know what events you do. I said, but explain to me why I should keep you. And you went into a conversation about what you've contributed to the team beforehand. I got your background on what you did at St. Ignatius. And I said, all right, then let's give it a shot. And that was about the extent of the conversation. And then our relationship grew from there. So I came out guns a blazing. Well, it it was interesting because I, so yeah, that would have been, so yeah, it would have been my junior year because I just would have come off of playing spring ball. I think I was just getting healthy. And the question was whether or not I wanted to continue that or or to give it a, a run at playing football again. Yep. And I remember thinking to myself, uh, the last time I was, I was actually, because I redshirted my sophomore year, uh, the coach before, he and I had a dust up because I had, I had done everything he had asked. And I, I pretty much did, I always did all the things you guys had asked me to do. And for whatever reason, when my times wound up getting slower my freshman year, and I remember telling him after one of my workouts, I said, I was faster as a, as a senior in high school. And I literally have done everything you guys have asked me to do, but somehow I'm slower as, as a freshman in college. And I've, and I've dedicated more time to this than I did when I was in high school. And I was right. like, how is that possible? And so I, at that point, my, <laughs> my, my trust in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the team was relatively low. And, right. um, I remember, you know, and it, and it wasn't, I don't think it was, you know, Ricky, Ricky had done a lot and it did the best that he could. And I think there wasn't a lot of belief that I would be able to contribute to the team, but I thought you did a great job of building trust, man, right away. Yeah. yeah. Well, I will say that, um, you know, I, w- I was really amazed when I first got the job there because, you know, I came there from, from Purdue. And, um, I mean, that, that was my last big coaching job was Purdue coming in there. And I was like, oh, my God, it's the University of Michigan. You have all these incredible resources. And, you know, you, you, you mentioned that you're at Michigan and the doors open up. Everyone wants to hear what you have to say. And when I got there, I was just blown away by how bad we were. Like, just team morale was terrible. Super low. Um, and we had, we had kids that wanted to work. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that. It was just. You know, there was three pockets of of groups within the team, and it was you know there was animosity amongst the distance guys to the sprint guy. Like it was crazy, and I I was just like, now you know, there I came here to win a championship, and and I and I knew one thing for certain is like we all got to be on the same page, we all got to be pulling in the same direction, and you know it took six years to get it there, you know, and I and I know there's and I tell you what, when we finally won that thing. In 08, it was amazing how many phone calls I got from guys, you know, in, in, in your class, in Michael Whitehead's class, uh, Nate Brandon, who, 
you know, you guys all went and moved on. And some of them actually had a chance to register it and come back and be part of that team. And they were like, hell no, I'm moving on. I'm, you know, and then we won it the next year. And, you know, just, just the process really of, of putting the pieces together where the, the sprint guys, the jump guys, the distance guys would actually hang out together. Like that was a big deal. The throwers and the sprinters were closed, you know, and I don't think, honestly, I think we had, before that championship year, we had way more talent, way more talent the year or two before we won it than we did the year we won it. We just, we just had, we just had, we had more guys that just wanted it and were, it was way more of a collective unit. Um, you know, and that was, that was really cool. So one of the, so one of the things I had Nate on the pod and one of the things that I, I agree with you a thousand percent. I thought, I felt like, we were a collection of in, of very talented individuals, um, right. and like I said, I I always felt like I always felt like you were kind of dealt a little bit of a raw hand, frankly, because <laughs> to your point, it is the University of Michigan. It does, you know, the name when you when you say the University of Michigan, if you're you know uh, a coach and you're wanting to talk to an athlete, they're going to listen inherently. They're going to say, "Oh, what do you got? What do you got to sure. sell me?" Yeah. Um, and I was talking to one of my, another one of my really good friends, uh, Mark Sylvester, who went to the university of Tennessee and, and we're going to, he's going to be a guest on a, on a future pod. And I'm sure he'll go into this in more detail, but one of the reasons why he didn't go to the university of Michigan was exactly for for the reason that you just said, he said that like the distance guys were the distance with, with the distance guys, he came on a visit and Mark is a guy from the city. Uh, and so they, he's a white kid from the city, but you know, everybody assumed that he would just be more comfortable hanging out with all of the, uh, the middle distance and long distance guys. He wanted to hang out right. with the sprinters. So he saw the sprinter, <laughs> right. he saw the sprinters yeah. for like five minutes and then didn't see him again the rest of his trip. And he was just like this, I don't get, the, I'm not getting a good feel like this is like a team here. This is like, we might get like some really good guys, but like, this isn't really a, like a team team. Right. So, right. Yeah, no, and that's, I think that's the thing that was unique about, you know, when we finally got, when we finally got the ship turned, you know, we had kids from rural Illinois, we had kids from, you know, New Jersey, we had kids from, you know, Jamaica, I mean, we had kids from, from all over the place, and when they stepped on campus, they felt appreciated, they felt part of something, um, it was just way different, you know, and, and even, and I would say, uh, one of the coolest things was I got a phone call on the bus ride back from um, from one of our distance guys that had graduated the year before or two, and and he said, you know, I, I've been a national champion and I've been, you know, all this and that. He said, but I would I would give that all back to have one of the rings that you guys just earned. Nathan and I was like, said the blown exact away. same thing. Yep, Nate said that yep. to me, and I always one of the things that I was always curious about. And I wasn't sure because I'd won a state championship and I had seen what we had done at, uh, at Ignatius to try to pull, to pull that off. And it was just, right. it, it takes a lot. I mean, you're, you're counting points. It's, you're like, it's super hard. You're, you're like, yeah. well, this has got to cut this way. Someone's got to like perform over their head and we got to get points all over the place. Yep. And one of the things that like, I always was surprised at was that we never, I never felt like we were trying to win a, a conference 
championship. The goal was always, um, and, and Nathan talked about this in the pod, he's like, well, Ronnie was never incentivized to win a conference championship. He was always incentivized to do well at, an, at national championships. And because yeah. of the talent level of Nate and Nick, I mean, we would perform poorly in the conference and they we do better at national championships, the national championship right. meet. Yeah. That had to be frustrating. Yeah. Well, and you know what the thing is, is like, and, and it only took me a year to figure that out. You know, I remember being at the national my very first year and I knew we were going to do well because we had, you know, Nick Willis, who's what now four or five time Olympian for New Zealand. And we had Nate Brandon, four or five time Olympian for Canada. And Andrew Ellerton, who was, you know, he was a slug, ran one, 45, you know, we go to the national championships and you knew that I mean, we were, they were just good. And I, I never really, you know, especially that year, like I never really thought about, man, if we're in the top 10, I get a bonus. If we're in the top five, I get a bonus until Ronnie rem reminded me, you know, and, and I remember that year, um, Nick Willis stepping off the track on the 5,000 because he said he felt uncomfortable. I remember that. And, and, and Ronnie ripped him like, what? You know, well, there was dollars attached to him stepping off the track. But, you know, my thing, my thing was, is I knew, I knew it wouldn't take us long. We're, we were always going to have a national presence because we could always attract those kids. Right. Um, but, but when I interviewed for that, for that job, you know, they, Bill Martin, the athletic director asked me point blank. He said, do you know why you're here? And I'm like, well, I, I'm assuming because you want to, you want a good track and field team. And he said, well, we haven't won a, we haven't won a big 10 title in forever. And I said, well, I like jewelry, so look, we need to get it done. But we also knew that we had to, we had to change the culture, right? We had to get, we had to get grinders, you know? And I mean, we had kids, man, and you know this, your teammates, they busted their ass. Like oh, yeah. they, you guys did anything and everything I asked, uh, maybe not right from the jump, but it didn't take you long. No. And then, you know, you guys... I started bringing kids in and you guys recruited them and they came because of the culture that we were building and the beliefs that you had and, and stuff. And I, you know, I've always said, I think I'm fairly good at what I do, but you know, the reality is, is if you don't have kids that are buying in and you don't have kids that are willing to, to run through a wall for you, I don't, I don't care how talented you are. You're not going to win. You're not going to get to the highest level. And and that's the thing where I think um, I feel bad sometimes for Nate. I feel bad for kids like Rondell and, and Michael and Jeff Porter, who, man, th they gave so much to that program, just like you did. And they never got a chance to, to taste the sweet nectar of, of a championship because, like you said, it wasn't incentivized. It was not, it was not the big deal for the person in charge. And that's really unfortunate because – Man, if if it would have been, we would have won five, six, seven of those crazy things. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there was there yep. was I, I couldn't tell you, I, you we could count up the points of how many points were left on the table because of just some of the decisions that oh. were made. And I yeah. just say to myself, yeah. well, one of the things that I I find interesting about coaching is that point of culture. I was talking to my friend about that earlier. One of the things, and and to your point, I've at, at Ignatius, Ignatius has such a strong culture. It's an interesting place. And it's driven by, you know, from the head of the school down to the janitor. Everybody's, everybody's singing from the same hymn sheet about who, right. what that school is and what it stands for, what it stands for. So I, I came from a place right. that everybody knew what they were and where they were going and where, where the ship was going and what the expectations yeah. were. 
I got on the, I got on campus and I got, <laughs> I showed up at the track and I'll never forget thinking to myself, these guys don't have a clue what they're trying to do. You got a, you got one guy over here trying to, show, trying to like, I don't know what some of the seniors were trying to do, but it wasn't, it wasn't in the interest of the program. It, it, seemed, it seemed like it was a time self-serving. And then you had these freshmen that were coming in that were super talented, but it wasn't clear that they were going to be part of a team. And so one of the things that I like, I'm like super interested in, in from you is just how, are, how do you go about developing and changing a culture? Because to your point, you came in, that shit couldn't have been more broke. I was, right. I was in it. It couldn't have been more broke than when you walked in the door and it wasn't, it was what it was, but I, how did you go about, cause everything that I could tell from what you were doing was absolutely intentional develop in terms of developing culture. Right. How did you do that? What was the approach? Yeah. So, you know, it, it's really interesting that, um, cause I get asked that a lot and it seems like that's kind of, uh, if I have a, I don't know if, if people talk to me about there, it seems they talk more about that. But yeah, when I got, when I got to Michigan, it took me a couple months to kind of figure out like, okay, so this, this machine doesn't need a little grease here and there. Like it needs to be gutted and, and started over. But you know what? I think the thing is, is that for me, you know, I loved you guys. Like I loved hanging out with you. I loved listening to you guys chirp about the craziest, most off the wall stuff. So for me, I think that, and, and again, I, I hung out there purposefully to, try to figure out like where's Darren Adams come you know from Cleveland like what the hell does he have in common with Michael from freaking Philly and and Stan from Maryland like you know so I enjoyed I purposely listened to those conversations and it just takes a little bit of buy-in from one or two of the right people and it starts pulling pieces together right so it was very purposeful and and the nice thing was is that for you guys it was very easy for me to connect with Right. And so once I got everybody convinced that I wasn't just a pole ball coach, that I actually coached other events too. Right. You know, yeah, it was very purposeful. And I, and I, and I took my shot with, you know, pulling certain people aside and, and getting in their ear and saying, Hey man, we're, you know, we're going to build this, but here's what I need from you. You know, Hey, you know, we're going to get this thing cranking, but I, I need to get so-and-so on board. And, and it was, it was, yeah, it was very purposeful trying to figure out who who was kind of the ringleaders and then how do we get them all together? Mm. Um, it was hard, especially there. It, it's hard in some groups where you have such a strong culture in one group to, to break that up a little bit. Um, I was very fortunate that Nate was that guy for me. You know, the unfortunate thing is that Nate, <laughs> you know, Nate was so interested in what Nate wanted to do that it was kind of hard. I think sometimes he got pulled between I, I, I need to be doing this, but I, I really kind of want to be over here too. So it took a little bit longer than maybe what I would have expected, but it's just a matter of, again, is trying to get the right people to buy in and to support your vision. You know, again, I, I hate kind of using the, 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 the term buy-in all the time, but I think there's, you had to develop certain levels of trust. And, I, and I'll say, I mean, especially in that position, you know, I think the coach that was before me, for most kids was highly respected. They loved him to death. And so when I came in, dude, I wasn't, I wasn't just the new coach. I was the guy who replaced the previous guy. Right. And yeah, you know, and, and of course I don't think on my introduction, I don't think they painted a great picture of me 
you know, hey, we got this great pole ball coach coming in and, you know, everybody that's a horizontal jumper thinks, well, what the hell? That's stupid. So getting in people's ear and kind of, and, and I think the other thing is too, is that when you, when you demonstrate to people around you how much you're willing to work, how much you're willing to sacrifice, how much personal energy you're willing to put in to getting to know them and to love them and to care about them, you know, everything right down to the phone calls that I got at two in the morning saying, coach, I drank too much. Can you come get me? You know, and people don't know those stories sometimes, you know, but there were more than once. I, I drove from from my house to Ann Arbor to pick up your teammate to get them back to their dorms to make sure they were safe. So one of the things that I always thought was interesting, and I kind of mentioned it before, when I was running and I, I thought you, and I wasn't sure if you did this intentionally or not, but I got in the habit of training by myself because I was one of the only guys on the, on the field team that was actually doing sprints. And Freddie really didn't seem interested in wanting me to do, do any sprint training with him. And so mm-hmm. I did all of my training separately by myself. Basically, I ran by myself. Uh, but I right. always did it with, with the previous coach. Um, and so I got in the habit of really training by myself. And then one of the things that I thought was interesting that you did right out of the gate was you're like, you're not training by yourself anymore. You got to train, train with everybody else. And you're like, only exception would be if you had a class. And I was like, all right, right. I was like, uh, fine, fine, fine. Right. And I think that that for me was like the biggest change for how I viewed like the group because mm-hmm. it felt like the thing that you did there is that you made everybody, you made everybody, you know, show up at the same time. Right. And then you made everybody practice together. You forced everybody to get to know each other. Right. And it was a, it was a weird group of people. And it just started to build like this, this cohesion within the group. And I felt like that, that for me, uh, and then you, you did a few other things that I thought were interesting in terms of building competition, in terms of putting people in the decathlon that had, they they couldn't do a field event. (laughs) But I felt like you're, you were trying to break barriers in that way. Uh, and at least uh, looking back and at least that would seem like that's the way it seemed. Um, because I remember we had no decathletes. And then in the second week, we went from zero to like eight. <laughs> I was right. like, oh, this seems intentional. Right, right. Yeah, well, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, again, we had we had some really talented kids. It was just a matter of like, where else can they help us? You know, I mean, if you're a six nine, six ten high jumper, you've got to be able to do something else. Like those cats are athletic. You know, if you can, if you can long jump 25 feet, God, you got to be able to do something else. So, so it was pretty intentional. Um, one, because I, I just needed to know, like, how do we maximize our points? What do we have to do to be competitive in this conference that we've been getting our teeth kicked in and knowing that we weren't going to get help from the distance guys, right? So if we were going to win something, we were going to have to do it from the weakest link. And All the way up. You know, the, but the other piece of that was I hated the idea that I, I've always believed this. You know, it's way easier to build, you know, team unity when you're bleeding and sweating and vomiting and, and stuff together, right? It, it, you, it allows you to go somewhere where you've never gone before because if you're training by yourself, you can't get there, right? If, but if you're training with somebody that's constantly kicking your ass, you're going to do one of two things. Either you're going to learn how to compete and get better or you're going to slide out the bat, right? Yeah. Um, and I don't think that's just, 
I don't think that's just specific with track and field. I think in business, if you hang out with a bunch of slugs, your business isn't going to make it very long. If you hang out with people that are getting it done, you're going to do one of two things. Either, either you're going to be unemployed or you're going to freaking take off. And that's kind of the theory I've always lived with is, you know, and, and even now in this position, you know, we're, we're building a culture from ground zero. I mean, we're, we're transitioning from division three to division two. Bar went up. I hate the idea of getting my teeth kicked in by the people in our conference. Mm-hmm. So that goes up, you know, and, and I get phone calls all the time from, oh, you know, I, my kid was in all districts, da, 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 da. Well, that's great. He would be freaking 85th in our conference. That doesn't help us. You know, yeah. so so there's there's no question that, you know, pulling those people together and, and letting you see each other hurt. And again, not not even just, you know, if you're over high jumping and you're watching the throwers lifting nine thousand pounds in the in the corner and you're going, Holy God, those guys are killing it over there. It brings a sense of appreciation to what you do and what they're doing. So you put those things together, you know, eventually, eventually you can't lose. How, eventually you can't lose. We got to rewind the tapes a little bit here because your journey into coaching is always, you know, you and I talked about this way back when, when I was at the University of Michigan, but it's one thing to, to start out saying, hey, yeah, I want to be a coach because of X. It's a whole nother thing, to like to your point, to, to find yourself 32 years in it and still talk about it like, oh man, we're going to go win this. And oh, right. we're, we're going to really get after it. And like have the, have the excitement in your voice thinking about, oh, I'm thinking about practice right now, tomorrow, and what we're going to be doing. I'm, I, I can already picture you doing split leg squats with the dumbbells and <laughs> <laughs> timing yeah. it 30 seconds. Oh, I can already yeah. see it. Yeah. We'll, we'll start with, how did you get into it? And then the, the more important question is, what keeps you coming back for more? Because you, you left it for a while. Yeah. So I got into it. Honestly, I, when I went to college, I went to the University of Kansas and um, I didn't know what the hell I wanted to major in. And I bounced around from major to major to major until I finally landed in education. I thought, man, finally something that's easy. And honestly, educational classes made sense to me. But you know what? <laughs> so when I went to the University of Kansas, I went as a middle distance runner. I don't know if most people know that, but I got called into my head coach's office and he just said, look, man, you know, you ran five ten or four ten, four eleven for the mile. You're not going to make it as a miler here. We can move you to the 10,000 meter group, be a long distance guy. Or we've been thinking, you know, it seems like you really have an aptitude for, for coaching. And he said, you know, I would offer you the opportunity to join my staff as an assistant coach, or you can move to the 10,000 meter group, which that for me at that point, very easy decision. <laughs> So I, for the most part, I kind of hung out my spikes and I started coaching and I, I was very fortunate to get mentored by a guy that was extremely patient, extremely tolerant in my learning curve, uh, Rick Addick, who's now at Washburn University. And, you know, and I had a chance right from the jump to be mentored by some of the great coaches in, in the U.S. who've coached, uh, I don't know how many Olympians and whatever. Those are mentors of mine that I still have on speed dial. You know, I got a chance to work with some really high level guys right from the jump and guys that were two and three years older than me, you know, so, so I kind of, I kind of fell into it because of my lack of ability, my lack of athletic ability. But, you know, I've always been really intrigued with even, even while I was going through my education class and stuff, I was always really intrigued with 
exercise physiology and, and, you know, why does the body move the way it does? And so I ended up writing my master's thesis in, in biomechanics, you know, and then I think once I kind of got into it, I was like, I just couldn't imagine doing anything else, you know, and, and for as much as I enjoy the creativity of writing workouts and, and stuff, you know, the thing that keeps me coming back are, are the kids. I just, I really miss the interaction. I think I understand kids that are in that 18 to 21, 22 year old range mm-hmm. because they're going from being know-it-all teenagers to developing into being goal-driven young people that are going to become productive members of society. I understand that piece because I really, you know, I tell people I was born and raised in Western Kansas, but I grew up at the University of Kansas as a student there. So being able to be part of that maturing process, you know, going from that high school, you know, everyone that competes in college was was all something, right? Mm -hmm. All state, all district, all league, all something. You know, but when you get to college, it doesn't matter. Nobody cares. No. Right? So so going through and, and just kind of following kids going through that process and understanding that, you know, you mature and, and that and the smart alley kid that you were as an eighteen year old is not the twenty three year old kid that walks across the stage. You know, and I love that that piece. It's funny, you're you're reminding me of Eric uh Wilson. I think it's Eric Wilson for Indiana. I'm sure, I'm sure if you I'm not sure if you remember this when mm-hmm. at the Big Ten meet where that one kid got super excited about, he just said a, a PR, personal record. And then Eric walked by him and said, I don't know what you're getting hype about. I jumped your PR in, in high school or something right. like that. Right, right. So you're, yeah. you're, you're reminding me of everybody's all everything. And then you get, yeah. you get so humbled, I think. At, I, I remember I, my humbling experience was Georgia Tech. It was, I was the slowest one on the track and a four by one. I had no business being mm-hmm. on that four by one leg. I don't know what you guys were thinking. <laughs> I have no clue what you were thinking. Cause here I am, you've got two Olympians. I got, I'm running like, so Stan's running the two, Jeff's running the anchor. And here's my mm-hmm. slow butt running the three. And, <laughs> and, and I'm sitting here and I'm going, you gotta have somebody faster than me. And I'll never forget running on the anchor leg against Jeff was, I think the, one of the guys from Florida who won the, won the 400 hurdles and then won the 110, there was like a qualifier for the 110. It was like Olympian, 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 Olympian. Right. And then I remember Freddie comes up to me right before we, we kick off and he goes, so when Stan comes up on you, he's going to be coming super quick. Like, you know how we've been doing it in practice and we keep giving him more and more and more room. Just just maybe give him a little bit more room because everybody's going to be juiced up a little bit. So just give him some room. <laughs> and I'm like, and I go to Freddie and I'm like, you know me, I'm always like, I'm like, Freddie, I'm fine. I don't need to give everybody room. Right. He hit that tape mark and I took off. Like, I swear to God, like a bat out of hell. And he ran up on me so quick. And I was just like, oh <laughs> shit. And then I was like, it was everything I could do to get around the corner. Yeah. And I was just so happy to get rid of the baton and just not feel like I was like getting like everyone's like, oh no, just staying in the mix. Yep. But that was my humbling experience. Yeah. You know what though? I think, I think, I think every athlete has that moment. Right. And I remind Michael Whitehead of this frequently, you know, his junior year had a lot of injuries and whatever. And I just keep telling him, you know, just, just trust the process. I promise you this is all going to work out. And we get to the national championships and he fouls a jump that's freaking massive. I mean, it's 
55 plus. I mean, huge jump. And he fouls it by just a little bit. And anyway, ends up by the end of the meet, he ends up jumping 54 feet and he's the national runner up. But we have a year to go, right? So his senior year, you know, he's, he's already figured it out. But the guy that beat him, he got lucky that day and he, he's going back to Brazil anyway. So I want to do it now. I'm the man. And Michael jumped great all year. We get to the national championships and he's all over the place. Warm up sucks. Um, run through suck, you know, and I, I keep trying to get his attention. He's, and he keeps telling me, coach, I got it. I got it. I got it. First jump in the preliminaries comes down, big jump, fouls it. I'm like, I'm up in the stands in Oregon and I'm going, Michael. And he's like, I got it. I got it. Coach, I got it. Okay. Second time comes down, takes off, big jump, probably 1680. Big jump. Thousand. Mm. And I look down at him and he goes, I got you. I turned and walked up the bleachers and went and got a hot dog uh. and came down. And I said, in his, I sat down and the guy, I remember the guy sitting next to me goes, are you going to move him back? I'm like, nope, he's got it. And he's like, really? I go, yep. He's going to bring it. He's going to check up. He's going to foul it, and it's going to be 17 meters. And sure as shit, he comes down, he checks up, he fouls it. It's probably 1720. And the, the best jumper in the country is out of the competition because he wouldn't listen. Yeah. And I remember walking down to the, the paddock area afterwards, and the first thing he said to me was, I should have listened. And I said, you know, at some point, when people are trying to help you in life, all you have to do is listen. You don't have to take their advice, but at least listen. Yeah. You know, and Give I think from that moment on, and again, I don't know if you, if you, if you communicate much with, with him now, but man, he, you would have never guessed that that, that little punk <laughs> in college is doing the things that he's doing now, you know? So sometimes you have to have those moments where it's like, it's like freaking reality check that, you know, and oh, again, yeah. luckily, luckily you got yours on a track, you know, some people, don't, somebody, some people get that after their second bankruptcy, you know, yeah. Like, and, oh, fuck. that's not good. Well, that's, I mean, that's the thing that I have always felt like, and I've always appreciated about athletics is that it gives you an opportunity to make real world mistakes with less impactful consequences. Right. Correct. Um, and, and that's as long what, as you're paying attention, yeah. as long as you're paying attention, to the failure. I talked with one of our young men tonight and I had this conversation with him. And I'm sure you've heard this before, but I'm like, if you're going to fail, fail big and fail forward. Yeah. And he was like, I don't understand what that means. And I said, just failing forward means that, that you screwed something up. It didn't go your way, but you're learning from it and you're moving forward. Don't ever take a failure and, and force it backwards where you have to maybe go through that trial again somewhere else down the road. And if you're going to fail. Okay, so back to what we were talking about. Well, that that's the failure. One of the things, and I got to ask you this, and I, I find this like, I was listening to a Joe Rogan podcast and one of the guests, I can't remember his name, it was Peter Atia, And he was talking about, and he's a doctor and he's talking about, uh, you know, he does these random, like, 
I always find it people that do these things weren't athletes in college because if you're an athlete in college, you you have gotten these experience out of your out of your system. But he does right. he would do like these ultra marathons kind of things for swimming, and right. he was like, I'm just going to push myself and like I'm going to swim from Catalina Island all the way to uh, Long Beach. Why the fuck anybody would do that open water? Don't know. He did good for him. See, it's a, it's right. super interesting story. But one of the things that he started talking about, and he talked about it for like five minutes, was this idea of speed. And so he was talking about it in the context of, so there's the guy that is, and I'm, I can't remember his name, but he's uh, like the, he's like the director of something at Nike. And like, he works with all of the guys pre-combine and he's like, no, he's like famous for getting those guys to drop like tenths of a second off of their 40 time. Right. right. And it's all driven by this idea of, I think it, I can't, I can't remember what it's called. And I was, I was dying to ask you this question. So what he does is they do deadlifts on a hex bar mm -hmm. and then they don't do the negative. So they pick he, when he picks up the, uh, the bar, he drops it after, after every pickup, they, they drop it. So they don't do any of the negative. Because he was talking right. about how that doesn't build any body mass uh, and that you get all the benefits from the explosion. And I was right. just like, seems interesting. I don't remember ever doing that in college. Gonna have to ask somebody that would know. What do you yeah. think about that? Yeah, so, yeah. Actually, it's funny that you bring that up because we actually do that now. You know, I still think there's, I think, I still think there's, there's tremendous benefit in um, building a tensile strength and, and muscle elasticity working through the full ranges of motion. But when you, when you want to just break it down and it's like, look, I don't have time for, for all this stuff, which is honestly what the combine's about, mm. right? They don't, they don't care about building long-term speed success. They're about building immediate speed success because once they clock four, two, nine, they ain't ever running it again. Damn right. Right. So we actually incorporate that a lot more now, actually, um, since we're getting into our championship season where we'll do the same thing. We'll load up a hex bar. We'll, you know, we'll grip it, you know, and we're trying to jump off the floor with it. And at the peak of our jump, we drop it, you know, so it just, you know, so we're developing that big, huge, elastic hip explosion, you know, off the ground and, and just letting it go. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, I think the problem is though is that people have to realize that there's there's a time and a place for everything. Like you couldn't build a, an entire strength program around that element. That's part of building a program. You know that might be the that might be the cherry on the top of the Sunday for a lot of people. I think it is for us, honestly. And we're just now moving into it because we're three weeks out from our conference championship. So we're incorporating that a couple of days a week on the same days that we're also doing other plyometric exercises. So. We put all of our power speed stuff on one day and then the other days are metabolic days, anaerobic days, whatever. Right. But yeah, I mean, that's basically all you're trying to do because you think about it, when you come out of the starting block, there's no negative piece. No. It's all positive. Mm -hmm. Right. So in the case of a 60 or a 40 in, in, in football players cases, there, there is no negative load. Right. I mean, there is in the sense that when your foot hits the ground, there's negative load, but but you're working on the on the power aspect, and a lot of a lot of athletes, you know, especially football guys, look, you know, their forties, it's it's make or break at fifteen meters, right? If you're not True. you're not up to speed, call an athlete by by twenty, you're not going to run a fast forty. Yeah, you're just not, you know. So 
so yeah, so we actually do incorporate some of that stuff, but when it goes into the program, how it's implemented, what the volume is, and how much rest happens on the back end, because that stuff is intense. It'll cook your nervous system. So figuring out how that fits into your program is, is really important. So one of the things that I found like interesting about that, because I, I agree with you a thousand percent, because I was, I was telling this to, to Whitney and to a, a few of the dads that asked me about it. And I was like, well, first of all, one, I, I did, I'm the last person you need to ask about this because, <laughs> because <laughs> I ran track. I did not, yeah. I did not coach track. And every workout that I did was handed to me. I did not generate my workouts. Um, right. And right. so like, I, I, I do not know. I, I know the stuff that I was doing and, and I had a lot of faith in the stuff that, you know, we, you and I would talk about this all the time. There was the mix between what we were doing and then what, what was happening at the NAT. And so I had a lot of faith in, in, both, in both of you guys. I think, you know, there was a lot of good stuff that the NAT was doing and a lot of great stuff that you were bringing to the program. Um, mm-hmm. and so I was all, I was always curious and I, I, I thought that a majority of what they were driving for, because they're, that is there's such a short window that they're really trying to capitalize on. I was like, there's right. no way this can really be focused on like long-term success. This has got to be like a short-term win. And I right. always wondered whether or not these guys were more susceptible to, to injury because of potentially overexposing themselves to a certain portion of the exercise and underdeveloping other parts of their muscles. Right. Right. Well, and you know, when I came to Michigan, I, I you know, being down in Friendswood, Texas, like that, that was the livelihood of the business that I ran there was, was prepping people for the combine. And yeah, I mean, we, we got people to run fast, but there were certain things that we had to kind of shy away from because if those, if those kids show up, the combine hurt, it, it costs them millions of dollars, you know? So Again, you have to be a little bit creative. You have to be a little bit selective as to what you want to dip into and how much. You know, we had a lot of pro. We had a lot of pro guys there that, um, you know, they refused to do anything overhead. You know, we had some. We had some some tremendous football. You know, quarterback prospects that went through our our camp, and um, we did nothing overhead with them because if they try to do a snatch movement and they pinch their shoulder, they can't throw a football. Oh yeah, it could be career ending. Right. Yeah. So. So you have to be pretty selective, but, you know, but yeah, you know, NFL guys, once, once they get through the combine, once they post a number, you know, that's why a lot of times you'll see guys um, that'll go to the combine, they won't run the 40 there, you know, or you'll see guys that won't do the vertical jump there. Well, it's because they're training for something very specific. So they're not ready yet. So they don't, they're not going to run. They'll go, they'll do the interviews. They'll do the, the 225 test. They'll do the shuttle run. They're not going to run the 40 because they're not ready yet. And so when they come off the combine, they may train for two or three weeks. And when the combine comes to their university and they do the testing, now they're going to be ready to drop a number. You know, so they're very selective on, on that, on when they're going to hit that piece and then hope the hell it works. So one of the things that you're, you're kind of hinting at is this, I, and I'm not sure how, much technology is playing into what it is that you're doing. But when I, I know when I was back at, at UMish last year, I was shocked at the facility change. And oh, yeah. I was blown. I, mean, <laughs> I was like, there should be yeah. no reason they lose period, given what I saw. Right. Cause if you compare the, if you yeah. compare what we had before you came, when you 
you put in a program actually at the track, which yep. didn't exist before. Right. And then you compare that to what they have right now. I, the nutrition, the, you know, they were talking to me about like how they are actually measuring each lift and they're, they're getting you 70% of your max, 90% of the time. I was like, excuse me, what? Right. Yeah. How, how does that, yeah. how does that kind of, how has that changed how you coach that? Because it's, it's almost like you're, it's less about coaching. I mean, you're, you're, it seems like you're now, you're, yeah. you're going more into managing personalities and getting people mentally ready yeah. as opposed to like physically ready, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it's interesting you ask that question because, you know, to me, there's, there's, there's two important sides of coaching. There's the science piece, mm-hmm. which is exactly what you're talking about. You know, proper nutrition, you know, how many, you know, how fast are you moving the bar, all that fun stuff. There's also the art of coaching to be able to walk out and look at an athlete, watch how they warm up and go, well, shit, that's not going to work today. Let's do this. Right. And so I remember those I conversations. Are, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're going to move so, that step back. Yeah. So for me personally, you can have all that, all that stuff. I want to be able to be there and see how you're executing the lift. Because if you're executing the lift and you're getting the right velocity, but the technique that's not correct, then you're, then you're missing the point. Right, mm-hmm. or you have somebody who's doing it very, very correctly, but they're not getting this number. Well, maybe they just think that they're just freaking not wired that way. Like mm-hmm. so, so I think there's, I think there is some validity to to having those numbers. And you look at the numbers on the spreadsheet. I think that's cool. But I think guys that are really, really good at coaching athletes, they don't, they don't, they don't care. Right? They want to see how you're executing the skill. You know, I can tell you, I coached a kid years ago that was a seven two, seven three high jumper, right? Mm-hmm. Can't dunk a basketball. Well, how is that possible, right? Well, you'd be surprised. I understand that, right? Yeah. So, but dunking a basketball doesn't require you to rotate to your back. Dunking a basketball doesn't require you to elevate your hips and drop your shoulders to where you're going to land on your head from seven feet up. Right. So, so the mechanics are different. Now you can make some analogies of how you're going to set that jump up, but you know, and I've had guys, you know, I know guys that can dunk basketballs like crazy. Sure. As hell don't put them on a high jump mat. Yeah, maybe. Right. You know, so yeah, I get more, I think that's probably an area where I feel like I'm really good at is going to be able to go to practice and watch you warm up and knowing that, you know, we were supposed to run, you know, five by thirties today. We're going to haul ass on them. And, and when you're warming up, you're not as talkative as you normally are, you know, so there's something going on. Well, what is that? Because if it's something that you haven't slept for a while or there's something emotionally going on, I can't have you do something that's going to be super, super fast and explosive. Yeah. It's just not going to work. So, and there's no need to beat that horse. Let's do something else. Come back. Let's simply do it tomorrow. You know? I'm a, I'm a firm believer that, you know, one workout here or there is not going to, it's not going to make or break you. But if you do something stupid and it costs you two or three weeks, now you have a problem. Right. Yeah. One of the things that I always found and I find interesting now is that with, and we were talking a little bit offline about this before, but my, with my daughter's club, her club specifically doesn't have a lot of training, speed training 
or even just training in general that they do. They just focus strictly on the soccer. But I, if I look at some of the other clubs, like on, in, on, the, on the coast specifically, they focus a lot on that. And, mm-hmm. and one, of, one of my buddies uh, that I went to grad school with, he, his daughter plays with a team that's super competitive with my daughter uh, in New Jersey. Their team's better, uh, allegedly. You know, we, we never, we haven't settled it on the field yet, but, um, but I, I was super impressed by the fact that they had the, the pressure scales, that they were trying to get those, those measurements on those kids already. And, right. and I thought to myself, oh gosh, that's, it's either, we're either too soon or, or maybe I'm missing it. And maybe, maybe that's the right time. I, well, how do you feel about, cause you've been on both sides of it, right? Cause you were prior to being, you know, in between being, you know, coaching at Michigan and then you're a coach musician. Now you were also coaching in, in high school. Right. How, how do you feel about like how much technology and how much all of the added stuff that you probably wouldn't get to get to college has kind of pushed back to kids that are 13? Right. Well, I, you know, I'm a firm believer that kids need to learn how to play first before we learn how to do all the other funky stuff. You know, I, I think it I think it goes back to, you know, what is what is your as a parent, what's your end objective for your kids? You know, are they out there playing soccer because they love playing soccer or is there some skewed alternative plan that they're trying to create? You know, you can have a kid who tests really, really well on you know, on whatever parameters that you have, but they can't freaking run and dribble a ball with their feet. Yeah. Like so Again, what are they taking those measurements for? What's the, what's the end game of doing all that stuff? Is it to make sure that your daughter has a feeling that she doesn't measure up, that she's not good enough? So they're weeding kids out, like you're not good enough because you don't have this parameter, this parameter, this parameter? Like, so what, what does that mean to the club who's picking the players? What do those mean to the parents? And I will tell you, you know, when I ran this, this facility in Texas, it was a business ploy to some extent, right? So we bring kids in and we run through this whole battery of tests that they've never done before, right? Yeah. And so so we grade them out on on, on this and this and this. No, yeah. you know, your, your kid's deficient in this. And we have all these metrics and all these numbers. And then we get them in there and we train them so that they can perform better on those, yeah. right? So that we can come back later and say, look, in six weeks, look what we've done. Your kid tested better in this. Their 40 times came down, da 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 da. Well, yeah, because if you've done nothing and now you're training towards that, those parameters, you show improvement. I don't know, man. I may, and, and maybe it's just that I'm old school, but I still think we are pigeonholing kids way too early into certain sports. I think soccer is a great game. Yeah. I don't think basketball is a great game. I think track and field is the greatest sport in the world. That's why we have a whole event that started because of those sports. But, you know, why are we limiting kids and, and putting them through this, this evaluation tool, which, which, again, I think when I get kids at the college level who are dealing with, man, just stuff that, that my generation grown up with, I mean, you know, body shaming, we got, we got record high number of kids going through depression or, you know, that stuff. Well, What's the benefit of all this testing except except telling some kid you're better than that kid? Mm. Well, I don't know if that's good or bad. I just think it's I think you've got kids that play sports 
God, man, if you if you have to beg them and drag them to get in the car to go to soccer practice, maybe that's not their deal. You know, how about they come to you and say, hey, dad, I got soccer practice in 30 minutes. Are we going to go? Then you go, oh, gosh, let me grab my stuff because I want you to have a good time. Yeah. You know? Well, so, I, I know I, I always, I, I, I agree with you. One of the things that like I've always kind of struggled with is like some of the things that we were doing in Michigan, you know, I, I always felt like was our, that's, that's, it's pretty, it's really good stuff. And I see some of these things that they're trying to push on, on, on kids that are my daughter's age. And I say to myself, to your point, what are we doing here? Um, right. You know, I, I totally get the idea of, of setting out a goal and, and some of these metrics can, you know, we're, we're saying, okay, well, here's where you're at. Most college kids are here and we're going to, we're going to go towards that. And we're going to make this about you potentially totally get that ish kind mm -hmm. of. But then I also say to myself, doesn't a lot of that come with playing and, right. and doesn't, and, and when we talk about like, uh, like, uh, you know, getting better around, um, you know, some of the, some of the things that are speed related or, or, or strength related, a lot of that comes with just, Hey, let the kid develop. Right. Some of these kids are, you know, how are we trying to get a 13 year old to do things that we're, how are we comparing you know, benchmarking a 13 year old to where an 18 year old should, is going to be, I mean, right. a lot of that's just, right. a lot of that's just going to work itself out. Right. Well, and, you know, and that's the thing is you, you're, you know, to some cases, I think, I think you're fighting genetics. You know, a, a kid, you can run kids through all the batteries of tests, but, you know, your daughter, for example, like they have mom's genetics and dad's genetics. You can train the hell out of them. But the reality is, is this is your genetic makeup. So unless you're doing something to change those genetic parameters, the kid's going to be what he is. What, what I think ends up happening a lot of times is, you know, and again, we'll use soccer because I will pick on soccer, but, you know, kids get involved in that game and which should be a game and they train it to a point where all of a sudden they, the rubber meets the road. And it's like, okay, well, I'm not going to make it as a soccer player. I mean, no one's recruiting me and how am I going to afford to go to college? And now you've missed all these years where you could be learning how to, how to compete and hurdle or long jump or hit a softball, or do all this other stuff. And I always find it interesting. Like, at the end of the day, you follow the money, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, sport, sports is big business. You know, so you follow the money. If somebody comes out to you and says, hey, you know, Mr. Adams, I think your daughter could really be on this, this next level team. You know, it's just, it's $200. We can put this training program in place for her. Well, it's like, really? It's $200? You yeah. know, I'll pay you 25 You run me through it first. Right. Right. But I just think, it, you know, and then, and then what happens? I mean, you, you go through all this stuff and you spend all this money, all this time and you know, your kids playing soccer, and, you know, U8, U10, U12, and they turn 16 and they go, dad, I don't want to play soccer anymore. <laughs> well, now what? Right. Now what? It's a it great question. Over? No, that's a great question. It happens more. It, it, there's a burnout factor. I agree with you. There's a Absolutely. burnout factor. Associated yeah. with, with and that's why athletics and, that, and, and honestly, that's why when I when I pick up the phone and call a kid on a recruiting call, you know I obviously I'm making the call because they've performed at a level that I that I'm interested in. First question I ask them: What else do you play? I just got on the phone with a quarter mile. I ran forty-seven point as a as a sophomore. Right? Forty-seven as a sophomore. Stop. Yeah. It. Yeah. 
so, and then he lost his junior year because of COVID. I said, what else do you do? And he says, well, I, I'm, a, I'm a swing guard on the basketball team and I'm a, a defensive back on football. Okay, so when do you start track practice? Oh, after basketball. You don't do tra- any training during basketball season. No, coach, I'm playing basketball. So that tells me that that kid's feeling and track hasn't been touched yet. Like, what if he's training all year long on a progressive developmental program? If you take the time that he's spending doing football and the time he's doing, and, and we're in Texas, by the way, so football time is 98% of your day. Correct. Try to squeeze in math and English and science once in a while in there, right? So you take a kid like that and you kind of go, okay, well, now if we can start getting into the science-based stuff where we can start laying some parameters and we can base our training off of those parameters, that kid very possibly could run 45 points for us, right? Mm-hmm. But if he's been running track since he was six, 24-7, all year long, he'll never, he'll never see his 16th birthday in track and field because he'll just be exhausted or he'll be hurt. So you bring up an interesting point. One of the things that I, I noticed when we got on campus, and I'm not sure if you noticed this, and this is if you still have, if you have this problem or if you don't, but talking to me about like, how do you manage the mental health and just the fatigue associated with being a, a college athlete now? Because I, I saw when I was there at Michigan, it, it there, the, I wasn't on scholarship. And right. so I was, I was one of those kids that was just, I was there because, well, fuck it, I had nothing else to do. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I might, I might as well. And I liked it. I, lo- I, I loved it. I, I loved, you know, I say that, but I, I loved, I loved the, what you were trying to do. And I love the guys, but I mean, I could see some of the guys were stressed, yeah. tired, not ma- some, you could argue some of them maybe didn't want to be there. How, how yeah. do you, if, you know, it, it changes when all of a sudden, you know, to your point, you know, give me the kid that says, I want to go to practice versus the kid that I'm dragging him to practice. But like when you, when you're now right. multiply that by 10, when someone's paying you to do it. Right. Well, then, then there's no question, you know, and, and I recently had a conversation with, with a, the female uh, student athlete that we were recruiting and mom and dad were pushing for scholarship money. And I said, you know, you do realize that the expectations are higher when you're on scholarship because now you're, for lack of a better time, Term, you're a paid employee like do you you know and it just so happened that this this um this young lady's dad ran his own business i said do you expect more from your ceo or do you expect more from your intern and he said well my ceo and i was like well why right he goes because i'm paying them six figures and i go exactly so if your kid comes here and i'm paying them five figures to run track i'm going to expect her to be on time to pass her classes because I'm paying you to do this. It's actually better for her to come in and work hard and earn that scholarship so that she knows that she's, she's doing things the right way. She's being rewarded for doing stuff the right way. There's no question though, that in, in 2020 and 2021, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that kids are dealing with a lot of stuff. And I think it's even weirder now with, with COVID, but I realized that there's there's not many kids in our country anymore that grew up the way I did. You know, two parents, one parent in the house, one having a job. Uh, we now have kids that come to us who are living with their grandma, who they have no money, 
So they're trying to do a job and run track to earn scholarship money. So they're going to, I mean, it's crazy the stuff that these kids are, are the burdens that they are carrying. Instead of just being 18 and 19 year old kids, man, they just want to come and play and have some fun. And, you know, so I, I, but I will say, you know, again, I think it's easier for me to manage when I can make the connection and I can have a, I can sit down and have an open, honest conversation. Like I'm talking to my daughter or I'm talking to my son and saying, you know, and try to dig into the, what the root of the problem is. And I would say that when, you know, especially the job that I have now, you know, it took a while. It's taken a while to kind of break some of those barriers down and have kids come in and sit down and close the door. And honestly, a lot of times they just want a place to cry and know that they're not being judged. Their roommates aren't looking at them like, oh my God, what the hell's her problem? Like, you know, just having a place where they can share their emotions and, you know, and just be, be themselves. I think, you know, a lot of kids now, they, they put up such a facade of, of who they are, who they really want to be because of, you know, they're going to get labeled as something or, or whatever. Well, I think you're, you're, you're touching on something that I think is super interesting is just this, the idea that, you know, and I'm curious to this, are the kids that you're getting at different? So you've been super modest about the experience that you've had as a coach at Clemson, Purdue, Kansas, Michigan, all places you've had phenomenal success. And even where you're at now, the role that you're in now is a different role than, than you had when you were at Michigan, right? Because you, right. you, were, you were effectively, I won't call it a position coach, but you, were, you had one section of the pie. Now you've got the whole thing. You've got the whole thing. Right. Talk to me a little bit. Talk to us a little bit about like how are the kids different that you're getting that are, that are going to your school different than the kids that you're getting that were going to Michigan or to Clemson or Kansas, or Purdue? Like how, and, and how are they different? And, and like, are the problems different? Cause you kind of, it seemed like you're suggesting the problems are, are different than what you might've been, been facing at, at Michigan or Purdue. Yeah, I think, I think they're, I think, I don't know if the kids are different, to be honest. I, I don't know if it's the kids that are different, but, but there's no question the environment of which those kids are coming from is different. So I think, I think at the end of the day, you know, an 18 year old kid is an 18 year old kid. It's yeah. just that one, one of those 18 year old kids had to act like he was 26 growing up and the other one got to act like they were 12 you know so you kind of have to dig through some of that but i think in general they still want the same thing right you know they still want to they still want to have the same college experience they still want to be around people who care about them and are going to push them and encourage them i think they want the same thing you know i i would say that you know i i think like when you were at michigan and i was there I think there were certain kids on the team that I bonded with in kind of a in kind of a different way. I don't want to say really kind of a father figure, but I had a lot of interesting conversations in in my office about what life looks like from a parent perspective, what things look like from you know. So having those kind of relationships, I find those more important now than what I did then. I found them back then to be just a kind of a means of which to make connections. Um, I think now those conversations are way deeper. They're way more meaningful. And how you handle those conversations carry way, you know, you can cut way deeper if you're not careful. Because they, they kids, carry more kids weight. upbringings are just so different. Yeah, it feels like those conversations carry more weight in your, yeah. in your, certain, in your, in your current circumstances than, than they did previously, to your point. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But I will say, too, like, 
I mean, and it's, and it's interesting, right? You know, you, you have a number of kids that come from, you know, single parents. You have kids that come from big time broken homes. We have kids on our team that went through foster care. All those kids show up. You know, we have kids that come from, you know, mom was at home, dad worked, you know, typical Americana kind of family. And we bring them together and they all blend and, and they look out for each other and, and stuff. But yeah, there's, there's some times where, you know, it's important for us in the recruiting process as, you know, surrogate parents to really try to dig deep and, and, and try to understand each individual kid's own personal story. Because while they're, they're the same in, in age and stuff, their stories are so different and their life experiences are so different. And, and how kids, how kids figure out how to manage their way through certain situations and stuff is just so different. You know, and, you know, and again, you know, to, to rewind 40, 40 minutes ago, that's what keeps me coming back is, yeah. is, is tapping into that. And, and honestly, man, as, as you know, every year that goes by and, you know, the more hair I lose and the, the bigger, the saggier my eyes get, you man, I, I learn something every day. I learn something new every day. And, and, and when I drive home at night, if I can think of one or two things that I learned today about a kid on our team or, or a colleague that I work with, dude, my day's full, you know? So you and I never talked about this and I'm always, I always ask all of our guests this question is, is how, how does faith play a role in, in how you try to connect with the young adults that you have under your care and, and if at all, and, and how does it play a role for you in terms of how it keep, maybe even keeping you grounded or, or keeping you engaged with, or keeping you refreshed in, in what you're doing? My faith? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, if at all, yeah, those are, that's always an interesting topic, right? You know, because there's a big difference between faith and religion. Yes, there is. Um, yeah. You know, I guess at the end of the day, I, I just want to treat people the way that I would want to be treated. I try to treat the kids on our team the way that I would expect my, my children to be treated if they were going somewhere. And then maybe, maybe more so because I really do feel like, you know, just as, you know, your daughter's going through a very transitional, very transformative time in her life being early teen. The kids that I get to get to deal with are also going through a very transformable time of their lives, you know, and I take that, I take that very seriously. And I just try to rely on the fact that you only get one shot at it, man. You know, you, you know, you can't turn back the clock and try to relive a moment, right? So, you know, anytime I get the opportunity to try to interact with a uh, with a young person, you just you try to be the type of person that you hope that whatever lies beyond this life, you hope that whoever or whatever is watching and judging that they smile at you and say, you know what, job well done. So, and and that and that's it. And all, honestly, at the end of the day, I can't do more than that. You know, if you treat people with kindness and respect, and you you know from time to time, and I know it's. Even in 2021, people kind of roll their eyes at you. I'm still the coach, man, that, that will still walk up and put, put their arm around you and tell you, that, you know, at the end of the day, it's just sports, man. You know? One of the things, and I'm not sure if you remember this, I'm not sure if you remember Michigan State. It was my last meet. I hadn't qualified yet for regionals. Mm -hmm. And I think we had, we had tried, like, you, we had done a couple different things. I think I took a week off. We were trying to, like, measure or meter my schedule uh, so that I could maybe get it at, at, at a couple different meets. And then we were like, okay, well, this is it. You got to get it at, at Big Tens. 
And I remember it was my last attempt at uh, 210. And I remember thinking to myself, kid, you know, either you're going to get this and you're going to get one more, you're going to get a couple more weeks at this. You're not. And this is going to be, this is going to be it. And you're not going to be putting these shoes right. on anymore. <laughs> and I didn't make it. And I remember feeling just so, I was, I felt one, I, I felt disappointed in myself, but I felt disappointed because I felt like the time that you and I had spent that last year, really just, you know, we were running Chrysler you know, we were, we were doing it. We were just doing all these things to try to, to try to make it work, to try to figure it out, just to get a little bit more out of it. And I remember yeah. just feeling just so, so disappointed. Like I had let you down and then you weren't on the, normally you stand relatively close, uh, but you were behind the fence. And I remember I walked over and you're like, and you, you looked at me and you gave me a little pat on the back, you gave me a hug, you gave me a pat on the back. And you're like, Hey, nothing to be proud, nothing to be ashamed of. You did everything you could do. And like, I couldn't tell you at the time, but like that meant so much to me because like, like you, I mean, you were, I mean, you knew better than anybody how much you and I, how much time you and I had spent trying to figure that out, figure out my staff, do all that stuff. And I really was trying to do it so that you, we could, we could just have a more good run at it. But dude, I really appreciated, you know, just everything that you did for me and, and it got me to that point. Uh, cause I was, I think I was the most consistent that year that I'd ever been when I was, when I had my entire time in Michigan, all that was due to you. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. I, I think the, the, the piece is, and again, this, this is, this is what, you know, as, as you venture into the, you know, the coaching world a little bit with your, with your daughter and stuff, you know, at the end of the day, you know, and, and, and I appreciate the kind words of, of the successes that I've had. Um, over the years, I've certainly had my share of failures as well. But you know what? At the end of the day, man, it it, it truly does like having opportunities to speak with you all these years later, getting the chance to reconnect with with kids from man back in my back all the way back to Kansas, right? To be able to connect and and still have relationships and 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 I I love following you guys on social media and seeing your kids growing up and and that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the beautiful thing about sports, right, especially in especially in track because it's so individualized, right, mm-hmm. is that especially as a high jumper, pole vaulter, like that you're always gonna you're always gonna end on a failure, mm-hmm. right? Yep. You're always gonna end on a failure. So, so how about the sport where you, at the end of the day, you stand there alone? It's you and a stopwatch. It's you and a bar. It's you and whatever. I think it's I think it reveals a lot about character. I think it's builds a lot of integrity it builds the ability to look at the situation and say you know what didn't happen that time i'll get up we'll do it again and and i think that's an important i think those are important life lessons to learn because man and, and you know this you've been married for a while and every day of your marriage is not sunshine and roses no. you know there's some days where you have to pick yourself up and go you know what made a mistake that time let's let's see if we let's try it again you know, and, and you'll make mistakes raising your child. You'll make mistakes in your job. You know, it's, it's, you know, again, it's that old attitude, right? It's not how many times you get knocked down, it's how many times you get back up. And I, th- and I think, you know, we're very fortunate that, that we've been able to learn a lot of those lessons in the field of, in the field of play where it's not, it's at the end, at the end of the day, if you would have jumped eight, two, it's still a moment in time. 
right? Yeah. And that's still not going to define you as a person. It's not going to define you as a human being. It's not going to tell you what kind of father you're going to be or what kind of grandfather you're going to be, right? It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything, the actual clearing of the bar. You know, what really means something is how hard, what were you willing to sacrifice for it? How much more are you willing to give for it? What kind of relationships did you build in that process? You know, because I was just to say that there's a vast majority of the guys that were on the team when you were there grinding that you could pick up the phone and, and say, hey, man, I got this thing going on. Could you help me? And they'd be like, hey, Darren, yeah, man, I got you. You know, they would they would try to help. Well, and, and I think that's a, you, you hit on that thing that I love the big thing that I thought you were great at was making and, and, and helping everybody establish relationships together. Right. Yeah. Cause it, it, I mean, I think that that, that's what really, uh, one thing I learned a lot when I was at Michigan is that, uh, and I really, really appreciate it was that it's just, it's really life comes down to having those relationships with people, getting to know people sincerely caring about people and and it's not always about it's not about necessarily i mean trust me i, I you know me I, i'm super competitive and i want to win <laughs> i want to win everything right. i'm doing <laughs> right. uh but but it's really about you know competing with somebody you know competing with brad competing with michael competing with adam stan all those guys it was about helping each other to try to push each other and jeff to be as good as we could be um, right. even in, in, in any infinitesimally small way that you could. Right. Right. So last question, this is one of my, this is like one of my, I ask everybody this as a coach. And I think everybody, even as, as you're, that's a, when you're kind of going through your professional career, you know, there's this idea of, of trying to seek success versus seeking simplicity. And I think a lot of times people are super enamored with, with the success portion of it. And then at a certain point you're like, you know what? I'm okay. I, I I like doing this. I like right. I like I like just to, and I heard it from what you were saying earlier. I I like just being around the kids. So right. what what does that mean for you? The success versus simplicity. Well, so I really like winning. I really like winning, and I will say, I mean, every day that I come to the office, I I'm trying to find what's the next piece for us to win. Right. I think for me. I think I measure success differently. And don't get me wrong. I, man, we, we were, <laughs> we were 9th and 10th in our conference meet last year. And I was so pissed off for getting on the bus. I couldn't hardly think straight because I just, I just didn't take that very well. But, you know, that's the, that's the competitive side of stuff, right? You know, to me, success is, is just working my way through the process. And, and I will say that, that my outlook on success and simplicity has changed a lot since when I started. I started off with I didn't care <laughs> where I had to go, who I had to get, what I had to do. I wanted to win, and I wanted to prove to people that I was as good in real life as what I thought I was in my head. And now, fast forward a little bit, you know, success is about making, again, it's about making those connections. It's about knowing that you're going about stuff the right way. It's about knowing that you're, um, you're impacting people. And, and if I can do that, if I can connect with kids, if I can get the right kids there, if I can get them to buy in, if I can, if I can get them to look out for each other, right? Then at the end, the winning piece takes care of itself. I don't, I don't have to coach it. I don't have to, because they want to do it for each other. 
Mm-hmm. But if I don't lay the if I don't lay the pavers down beforehand, the patio will never happen, right? And and so I find that I find that to me as that's what's rewarding about the whole thing. And and again, the simplicity of that process, like I just want to try to treat people like human beings. I want to, you know, that's why I will say, you know, 2020 was really hard for me because of, of our country is so divisive. There's so much just crazy stuff like that. I just want to treat people with kindness. I don't care if you're white, black, green, blue, Democrat, Republican, whatever. Just treat people with kindness and try to connect with them, understand their story. And, and I think things will fall into place. And, you know, when I first got here, our, our very first team meeting, when I got ready to leave, I said, look, you know, you guys are all going to head back to your apartments and stuff. I said, I ask you one thing for each of you as you walk back to your apartment. And I said, that is take care of each other. And I just left it. And two or three weeks later, I got cornered by a couple of the young ladies on the team. And she goes, we wanted to ask you, like, what did that mean? Take care of each other. And I'm like, Take care of each other, whatever that whatever that means. If somebody somebody calls you and, and needs help, so they they need your guidance, they need your compassion, they need. Then I want you to be there for them. You know, take care of each other. And I've been here a year and a half now, and it's starting to under people are starting to understand what that means. And it's, again, to me, that seems like such a simple thing, but people don't. We live in such a fast-paced world now that people don't take the time to just care for each other, you know? And yeah. I don't care if I never win another championship. If, if I can instill that in the young people that go through our program and I never win another championship, I think I'll be okay. Although it. I still like to win. Yeah, I was going to say, you're going to want to win yeah. too. Yeah, for hey. sure. What, and we're going to have to, we're going to cut this at the front. But one of the questions, uh, I'm not sure how big of a podcast fan you are, but you know me, I love basketball. And so my favorite pod is uh, Knuckleheads. And they always ask this question. When you got to the league, who was the first person that busted your ass? Great question. They, right. they, oh, you know, everyone gets their ass busted when they get to the NBA, yeah. no matter how good you are. Yeah. And everybody um, says Michael Jordan or Kobe. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. You'd be surprised that you get Stacey Ogman. I heard someone say Stacey Ogman. I was like, Stacey Ogman? Really? Like, you gotta be... You, uh, that must have been... It was you, you had an off day. day. You had a real bad day. Um, <laughs> but so our equivalent on the pod is what was that moment as a professional, as you were, you know, when you were starting to become a coach or even before where you're like, oh shit. Yeah, this is yeah. me now. I'm a professional. What was that yeah. moment for you? Yeah. So, you know what? I <laughs> So when I was at Clemson, so I hit my coaching career a little bit. So I left Kansas, went to Wake Forest. Spent, wait, spent a couple years at Wake Forest, and I left there and went to Clemson. And the the difference between the environment, the expectations at Wake Forest to Clemson, night and day, it'd be like going to the, I don't know, it'd be like going to the Tampa, to uh, to the New England Patriots from the Detroit Lions, right? Yeah. Like just night and day difference. And so I'd been there maybe my second year, and North Carolina's women's team was loaded. I mean, they had five, six, seven Olympians on there. I mean, crazy, crazy good. So we get to the we get to the conference championship, and we get we end up second, but we got beat by like sixty eight points. 
right? Mm-hmm. But we were still second. And so I'm like, okay, all right. You know, we're, we closed the gap because the year before it was like 90, right? And mm-hmm. this was still, this is still big time division one track. I'm walking down the hallway and the senior associate AD pulls me aside. He goes, I'm going to see you in my office. Okay. So I go in there, close the door. And he looks me right in the eye and he goes, what the hell happened? I'm like, what, what are you talking about? We were second at the conference. And he goes, you got beat by 68 points. And I said, but, 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 but it was, we're 30 points better than last year. <laughs> and he said, it's unacceptable. We're Clemson. Get out of my office and go fix it. And I went, I remember almost exactly what you said. Damn, <laughs> this shit's real. Right? Yeah. Because at Kansas, there was not, there was really no high expectations for us in the big, in the big eight then. We were kind of a tweener team. Wake Forest. Not even close. Clemson was now like unacceptable, you know. Yeah. And there was there were some there were some scholarship advantages that North Carolina had and stuff. But man, it was right in my face. Like it's not good enough. Mm. And I was like, okay. <laughs> needless to say, needless to say, fast forward four years, we did beat their ass finally. It was my last team there. But yeah, man, that, I was kind of like, and I, re- I remember calling my wife from the office almost in tears because I was like, what the hell did I get into? Like, this is some serious stuff. It's crazy. So, when, when expectations yeah. hit, man, that's when you're like, yeah, oh, man. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. Even, even here, you know, I sit down with our athletic director and I'm like, you know, kind of give me an idea. You know, what, what's your time frame? I mean, we're going through a three-year transition to get into Division Two, be full-fledged Division Two, we were already a couple of years into that process. And I said, "So, what's what's your time frame of of us getting in and being competitive in the conference and whatever?" And he goes, "Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, four or five years. You know, we just kind of build into it." And I was like, four, four or five years? I was thinking like four or five months. Like, like let's go." And um, wow, it's not going to take us four or five years. I can assure you of that. But it didn't happen in four or five months either. So uh, <laughs> you got you to you balance those two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's good though. I mean, I honestly, if I didn't have my own expectations of trying to turn this sucker around in four or five months, I'm just not that guy. You know, if, if I can't, if I'm not building, producing, and challenging for championships, then I, I'm not the guy anymore. Then I need to, I need to find something else. You know, get into competition bass fishing or something. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm just not wired that way. And I, and I thought by the time I hit my mid fifties that I'd be like, I need that job that I can just roll into the sunset with and coast, man, Darren, nope. I don't think I'm wired that way, buddy. No, dude, I, so, we, we got on the, we got on the call and like I told you, you look the exact same <laughs> as is if I saw it, it was almost as if we just walked off the track, except it was raining then. Oh, you look the same, right. man. You look great. <laughs> yeah. So, so you see my you see my picture on my shoulder? I do. Yeah. So that was actually a picture taken at that Michigan State meet, and it was, that's a charcoal drawing by one of my triple jumpers from Purdue. Oh. And I don't know if you can see it, but you see it. I, it's I, got my hat on there. I was wondering if that was you, or if that was I was trying to figure out if that was you, or if that was someone else, because the light's kind of hitting it a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. Nope. That's me. And um, 
the young man who did it for me was great. But you can see if I move my head just right. That's my old hat. Yeah, I saw the hat. Yeah, I saw the yep. hat before. Yeah. Remind uh, so, love that hat. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you probably can't even tell, but like I don't know if I can point at it. But there's a picture of me with Adam Keesler. Right there. No. Really? Yeah. Oh, I yeah, yeah I can sign it. I can kind of see it. Yeah. 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 So well, but yeah, man, I, I I try to travel a little Michigan with me still. I still got my tattoo, buddy. Love it. I love yep. it. I love it. Yep. I never I never got the block M. I never got any tattoos, but I, I got yep. a lot of respect for everybody that did. That was the yeah, you know, that was the promise I made to that first recruiting class that I promised them that they would win a championship before they left. You get a block M. And that was their senior year and I went to get my block M at the uh thing it's called the Grease Monkey in Ann Arbor and I think I went with like fifteen guys to make sure that I got it done. <laughs> That's awesome. So yeah. Very yeah, cool. So, yeah, man. All right, man. Well, no, I appreciate you coming on the pod. This has been great. And I'll do a close. So we just had Coach K on. And again, want to thank him for hitting the pod up and uh, joining us and, and giving us and reflecting back on, on his journey and uh, trapping a little wisdom. Appreciate it, man. Thanks, man. I appreciate you. It's so great to catch up. Bye-bye. See you. Bye. Well, that's our episode. Thank you for listening. You can find the pod on Twitter at JWTS Podcast and on the gram or Instagram for those that might not know at juice underscore worth underscore the underscore squeeze. I want to thank Coach K uh, for coming on the pod. And I want to thank you for listening. Per usual, hit me up if you have any ideas for guests or just suggestions for the pod. Don't forget to smash subscribe and get updated when we drop new episodes. Thanks so much for supporting me and supporting the podcast. And we'll see you back here next week. Peace.